Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in to the Paulo Salguero Show. We're going to be here until 5 o'clock today, like every other Saturday. Uh, and, and today we have a, a special show for you on tap. Uh, we're going to learn uh, something new today. We're going to hear some interesting stories. And more importantly, you're probably going to laugh at some point in this uh, on, during this show. And, well, if you don't... <laughs> Get a sense of humor, folks. Uh, in any case, uh, today I'm thrilled to announce uh, we have Mr. Tom Dreesing joining us via our phone lines. Uh, many of you probably know Mr. Dreesen. He's actually celebrating his 50th year, uh, five zero, 50 years in show business. He's made over 500 appearances on national television, including 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. That's right, 61. He's been a regular in all the showrooms in Las Vegas, folks. He's performed with Sammy Davis Jr., Lisa Manelli, Natalie Cole, Smokey Robinson, and one thing, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you've ever heard or have seen previous interviews with Mr. Dreesen, you'll hear all these hosts talk about he toured and he opened with Frank Sinatra. Well, guess what? I'm not going to be making that mistake today, folks. No, no. Let's get it straight right now. 14 years, Sinatra toured and he closed, okay, for Tom Dreesen. He was the Tom Dreesen's closing, closing act, okay? Uh, Mr. Dreesen also founded uh, Day for Darlene, where he ran 26 miles three years in a row to raise money and honor uh, his sister, who had uh, multiple scoliosis. Uh, but most importantly, uh, Mr. Dreesen is also a Navy veteran. He served our country. He's also been part of comedy history. And we're going to learn all about that during this interview. Uh, so first and foremost, I'd like to say uh, to Mr. Dreesen, uh, thank you. To begin, thank you for your service to our country. Thank you for how you support our troops, our communities, and most importantly, thank you for joining us today. Mr. Dreesen? Mr. Dreesen, can you hear us? Yeah, now I can, yeah. Oh, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, did you hear the intro or no? I did hear the intro, Okay, yeah. okay wonderful. So uh, for our listeners... Um, what, what have you been doing currently since I kind of gave kind of a rundown and later on we're going to get into com kind of the, the comedy history. But currently, what are some of the projects and what are you doing? How was your day today? Well, first of all, let me say to your listeners that that, that joke you told that Frank closed for me, that was a private joke between Frank Sinatra and me. Uh, for 14 years that I toured with him, whenever I would be with him somewhere at a cocktail party or something like that, people would come up and say, how long have you opened for Frank Sinatra? How long have you opened for Frank here? And I'd say, you know, to be honest with you, we like to say that Frank closes for me. <laughs> Frank would start laughing. He would always say, yeah, that's what I do. I close for him. And it was a joke. So I don't, I don't want the Sinatra fans to be out there be thinking, the nerve of this guy. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but that, that was always a joke. Currently, I'm, I'm still on the road a lot. I, I'm, I'm doing a one-man show now called An Evening of Laughter and Memories of Sinatra. It's... Um, a 90-minute show that I do in theaters all around the country um, where um, I, because no matter where I went, after the years I toured with Frank Sinatra, no matter where I went, people always want to know about Frank. You know, they always want to ask me questions about him. So I put together this one-man show where it, it, it's, it, I go to theaters and the theater goes dark and, um, and on, on the screen, a screen on the stage and uh, a film comes out, and Dennis Farina, God rest his soul, narrates three minutes of my life. I come out from introduction from the film, and I do stand-up comedy for about 20, 25 minutes, and then I segue over to a bar that's on the stage, and there's a bottle of Jack Daniels, which was Frank's drink of choice, as everybody knew. It's on the bar, 
and I go to the bar and I tell a funny story at the bar, and the audience laughs. And while they're laughing, the lights go out in the theater, and on the screen, Frank is singing. It's quarter to three. There's no one in the place except you and me. You know that saloon song, one for my baby. And when he gets to the chorus, make it one for my baby and one more for the road, he goes off screen and the spotlight hits me, and now I'm in a bar and I've come home. And I tell the audience, the first time I heard that voice, I was eight years old, shining shoes in a bar on the south side of Chicago, and he was on the jukebox. And then I take the audience from that little boy hearing Frank Sinatra on the jukebox on the south side of Chicago to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. So I take them on the journey. And as I'm telling stories, pictures are coming on the screen, authenticating the stories that I'm telling and film of Frank and I. So I have them laughing, 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 and then I take them to the funeral, and I actually have them in tears. And then I segue out of that into a monologue that has them laughing again, and I close with a big laugh, and then I toast them with the Jack Daniels, and I say, I wish for all of you what Frank Sinatra wished for you, the very last song that he ever sang, is that the best is yet to come. And I say, good night, everybody. And then Frank is singing, the best is yet to come as people are leaving the theater. So I've been doing that show all around the country. You know, That's remarkable. And uh, so uh, I, I know I saw a couple promos of it uh, online. And so uh, today's show, I'd like to showcase uh, kind of the beginning to uh, currently uh, your career. And so I'd like to begin with uh, your time in service. Uh, you were in the Navy. Uh, essentially, uh, could you explain what, what, what drew you to the military? Why did you join and, and kind of your experience in the military? Well, here, first of all, let me digress a little bit. I had eight brothers and sisters. We lived in a shack on the south side of Chicago, a suburb called Harvey, Illinois. And, uh, I, you know, we were raggedy poor. I had holes in my shoes as big around as a coffee cup when I was growing up. I, so I shined shoes in taverns. I set pins in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime. I sold newspapers on the corner, all to help feed my brothers and sisters. It was a blue-collar town with steel mills and factories and taverns. We had 36 taverns in, in Harvey, and they were blue-collar people. You either went to college or you went to the military. Uh, when I came out of the service, there was a pizza place that I hung around that if you went in there and there were 22 guys in there, 21 of them served. And almost all of them were volunteers because even though they had to draft in those days. So that's the kind of environment I grew up in. And when I was a, a high school sophomore, I, I was, you know, raggedy poor. I, like I said, go to school with, with a raggedy poor clothes. We, we, had, we lived in a shack that had no bathtub and no shower, no hot water, you know, so... I, you know, I, I was almost embarrassed the way I was going to school every day. And so in my sophomore year, I quit at 16, and I kept working in a bowling alley. And then at age 17, I joined the Navy. And I went in the buddy plan with a couple of guys. And it was, it was life-changing for me because for the first time in my life, I was uh, equal to everybody. You know, the, everybody gets their head shaved, and then all of a sudden we all have the same clothes. So I was, you know... I wasn't the, 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 the poorest-looking kid, you know, and, uh, and also three squares a day, which was something I wasn't used to, three meals a day, and a shower. I could stand in the shower as long as I wanted to, uh, and I had more than one pair of shoes. <laughs> so the, the military was good to me, you know, and uh, I went to boot camp at Great Lakes. Afterward, went to Newport, Rhode Island, and uh, fell in love with the East Coast, and I was at Newport for a long time, for several months, and then I went over to um, Quonset Point, Rhode Island, uh, where I served. I was in a squadron called Nat 2 Naval Air Torpedo Unit, 
And then while I was there, I served with the Marine Corps unit called NEGDF, Naval Emergency Ground Defense Force. They trained us. You know, I, I served with them for about nine months. And then I went aboard the USS Tarawa, an aircraft carrier, and served on that for um, several years. And then I, 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 was, I went aboard the USS Essex, another aircraft carrier, and I was discharged from there. So the military was good to me. It, it, it helped me mature. I, I went from a boy to a man while in the military. And, uh, and uh, you know, it was, it was just a, a great experience for me. And, and during the military, too, I, you were involved in basketball and boxing. Is that right? Yeah. I, I, played, I was always very athletic, even as a kid. Uh, and so I, I played, you know, basketball at, at Quonset. And I also boxed. Uh, I didn't really want to box. I wanted to play on the basketball team. But a friend of mine told me um, in, at Celebrity Services, he said, look, go out for the boxing team. They're gonna, they were going to send me mess cooking for four months. And I said, I didn't want to go mess cooking. They said, he said, well, go out for the boxing team. I said, I don't want to box. He said, you won't box. He said, you'll be training with the boxers. You train for four months, and then they start putting you in the, in, into uh, fights. You know, They have what they call smokers in those days. So I said, okay. He said, but then what you will never, you'll never get a box because by that time basketball season will come. I said, oh. So I went up to the boxing team. And after about a month and a half, the captain on the base, his name was Captain Creighton, he got a little restless, and he liked uh, fights. You know, he liked boxing. So he said, come on, we need more, more smokers. So all of a sudden, next thing you know, I was boxing. You know, they put me, <laughs> three rounders, you know. They'd put me in the ring. They'd say, how much you weigh? And they'd say, 135. All right, match him with a guy 135. Well, the other guy 135, he might be a Golden Gloves champ from Pittsburgh, you know, <laughs> so I was outmatched many times, but but yeah. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Already, folks, we're we're uh, interviewing uh, Mr. Tom Dreesen, of course, on his remarkable career. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back. We're going to get more into uh, kind of the beginnings of comedy uh, in, in his career, the history that he made, and uh, get a little bit more in-depth in the career, and then we're going to continue on. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Alrighty, folks. Welcome back to the Paul Sargero Show. We are gonna, we are in studio with uh, Mr. Tom Dreesen. He's joining us via our phone lines, and we'll be here until five o'clock, just talking, conversating, and uh, making people laugh, hopefully, and learning uh, something new. Of course, um, this all started. Uh, uh, I was at work one day, and my coworker said, "You know, if you could meet uh, your favorite celebrity, would you want to?" And at first, I was like, you know what? Uh, I don't know, because I feel like, you know, you know, maybe if you met them and, and you know, if they were, uh, you had the wrong perception of them, it would change how you feel or whatnot. But I was like, you know what? If I could, I'd probably want to uh, meet or at least talk to uh, Tom Dreesen. And then I told my parents about it, and they said, you know, why don't you try and uh, get him on the show? And I said, well, I don't know. It's a shot in the dark. He's probably doing a bunch of other things. I don't know if he'd want to join. Uh, and then sure enough, I reached out and uh, he agreed. So I'm really excited for today's interview. Uh, we're continuing on. We learned about uh, kind of his military background, how he uh, was involved in boxing and his upbringing in Harvey, Illinois. Uh, we're going to um, jump to comedy now. Uh, Mr. Dreesen, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your beginnings in comedy? How did it all start? Where did it all begin? I had no intention of ever being in show business. It was the furthest thing from my mind. I never thought about it as a kid growing up or just nothing like that at all. I, I came out of the service after four years, and I was married, and, um, and I had a kid, I got, ended up having three children, and, and I was a young kid in my 20s, and I was wandering aimlessly. I, I, I went from job to job. I came out of the service. I worked construction. 
I work with concrete crews and weeding concrete, and, and I work with bricklayer, bricklayer helper, and I did all that pouring, you know, doing sidewalks and basements and stuff like that. And then I, I went from there to uh, uh, working at, at, at a loading dock, loading trucks, and I was a teamster, and then I dropped my card, and I became management for a trucking company called Jones Motor. I, I, I just went from one job to another. I tended bar all the time and, and all those kind of things. And then I ended up I was selling life insurance for uh, a company called Columbus Mutual Life Insurance, selling out of Chicago, and, and just n- n- never satisfied with anything that I was doing, frustrated. And I joined a civic group called the JCs, the Junior Chamber of Commerce in those days. And uh, I, they, they trained young men. They made leaders out of young men in the community by working on community projects. You learned how to s- serve on a committee, how to chair a committee, and how to attack the problems of that community and trying to make that community you lived in a better place to live, thereby making the state a better place in the country and in the world. The JCs were worldwide. Well, one of the biggest problems facing our community in those days were drugs with our youth, and as it is today. And so I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor. It was a concept that I had, making the kids laugh in the classroom, playing music and getting their attention, and then planting the seeds of the ills of drug abuse. Working with me on this project, and let me digress for a second. I was praying in those days, saying, God, what is it I'm supposed to be doing? This can't be it. Everything I was doing, and I was not content with. I would do it well, but I wasn't content. I kept thinking there's something in my life that, you know, what am I here for? What am I supposed to do? Anyhow, uh, that being said, when I proposed this to run this drug education program as a JC project, uh, a young black man joined the, the chapter that night, and uh, his name was Tim Reed. He was from Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, he graduated from Norfolk State College, and E.I. DuPont recruited him into Chicago as a marketing representative. And he came up to me after I proposed that I was going to run this program. He said, I'd like to help you. And I said, gee, I already got a guy, but thank you. I had a white friend named John DeBoer that was going to do it with me. The next day, as fate would have it, John DeBoer called me and said, Tom, I can't do that. I got a new job. I can't do the project. And I said, gee, what was that black guy's name? Oh, yeah, Tim Reed. So I, I, I called him up and I said, would you work with me on the project? We went to work on the project, went into the schools, and the program became, the moment we went in the classroom, I knew that this was fate because the children responded to us immediately because the children where we were going teaching at were black and white. It was integrated schools. So when a young black guy and a young white guy went in the classroom, we got their attention right away, playing music and making the kids laugh. We, we played off of one another a lot. And once we got the kids' attention, then we planted the seeds of the ills of drug abuse in the community. The program became so successful as number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries JCs use it as a model program through their publications on how to teach drug education at an elementary school level. And one day, after eight months, a little eighth-grade girl was walking out of the classroom, and she said, you two guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And two days later, we're thinking about it, talking about it. I said, you know, you remember what that little girl said? Would you do that? Yeah, I'd do it. Would you do that? But we didn't know what to do. The thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us because there had never been one in the history of America. So we start writing what we thought was comedy, and you know we, we there were no comedy clubs in those days. So we had to get up on you know we went to a, a jazz club one night and tried out our stuff and we bombed. We went too fast, and the guy told us come back tomorrow night. We went back the next night and we scored. We you know we 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 got over. We got some laughs, and what happened to me was when I got that there was something I had written that got a laugh, 
and when I was on stage that night, it was like an epiphany. It was like one of those old B-movies where the dark clouds open up and the sun bursts through. That, that moment I got that laugh, my whole being went, yes, oh, my God, yes, this is what I want to do. I want to be a comedian. And uh, so Tim and I became America's first black-and-white comedy team. We stayed together six years. Uh, the team broke up. Tim later went on to become Venus Flytrap on WKRP Cincinnati. He was on another show called Sister, Sister. He's been on many sitcoms, Simon and Simon. And, and uh, we're still the best of friends to this day. We wrote a book called Tim and Tom, an American Comedy in Black and White uh, a few years ago that's now hopefully going to become a movie. We've got some producers looking at, at, at the scripts now, so we're thinking that it may become a movie about the first black and white comedy thing. So that's how I got started. And if uh, I'll just bring it up now, if our listeners are interested in purchasing uh, your book, how can they do so? Well, you can go on Amazon. I'm not trying to sell the book. It's, it's, it's done real well. But you can go on Amazon and order it. It's called Tim and Tom, an American Comedy in Black and White. <clears throat> and you can look up the reviews on Amazon. It's a good read. It really is. And in, in, in how this black man from the South, an only child, met up with a, a white kid from the south side of Chicago uh, who had eight brothers and sisters and grew up in a shack. I'm a high school dropout. He's a college grad. I mean, we were so opposite. You know, and that that we became the best of friends and still are to this day. Uh, you know, I love him dearly. He's, he's you know my truest, dearest friends in the world. And and but we he after he went on his way, and I went on mine. That's when I came out to the West Coast and I began to struggle. I started to go on at the comedy store, and I finally got the Tonight Show to come and see me. And and I did my first Tonight Show. I got bumped three times before I finally got on. But after my first Tonight Show, my whole life changed. I've never stopped working since that day, and that was in December 1975. And from there, I went on to tour with Sammy Davis Jr., Smokey Robinson, you know, all the different people you mentioned earlier, and then finally with Frank Sinatra for 14 years till, till his very last performance. Absolutely. And uh, I wanted to ask, too, uh, when you say you, that you, you had wrote something and it, got, and it felt like an epiphany, do you remember uh, the, the first joke that you said that, you were, and that made you think that? It was a part of a comedy routine that Tim and I were doing about, um, uh, about you know, where he, he was going to teach me how to be black. And, and we, we, you know, some of the things that we wrote in there that got a laugh, one, one of them was something that I would, you would have to see the sketch to understand it. Yeah, yeah. But, but, it, but it was just that moment, you know. And I always, by the way, when I was in the service, I always told jokes. When I was shining shoes in bars in the neighborhood, uh, my mom was a bartender. Uh, in, in, in a bar where my uncle owned the bar, and he used to tell jokes behind the bar. And as a little kid, I, I was fascinated by, by his jokes, that with his vocabulary and his vernacular and his inflection and timing, he could cause this sound to come out of everybody's body, this laughter that filled the air like electricity and united everybody in the bar. I just found that fascinating. And I used to tell his jokes, many that shouldn't be told on a Catholic school playground. <laughs> But, but I always enjoyed a good joke, and I always enjoyed a, a good story, you know. Absolutely. You know, when you were starting uh, in comedy, did you have uh, specific comedians or maybe t uh, types of sketches or, or anyone that you had looked up to or you thought that was funny? Sure. As a stand-up comedian, first of all, Martin and Lewis as a comedy team, you know, I mean, I, w I was always big fans of, of Dean and Jerry and later became friends with both of them uh, in my lifetime, which was, a, was always a thrill, but... But um, 
there, there were many, you know, like comedy teams that you would look at and look for their delivery and their timing. But as a single, when I became a single, Jack Benny, <clears throat> there's two comedians that influenced me. One was Jack Benny and the other was Richard Pryor. And for two different reasons. I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood as, as a white boy. I played basketball on an all-black basketball team. I played football on an all-black football team. You know, I, I grew up on the streets. I don't have a degree from academia, but I got a doctorate from the streets. <laughs> and Richard Pryor appealed to me. You know, when, when, when Richard Pryor was performing, I'd be, my stomach would hurt laughing because it was like being on the corner with the guys I grew up with, listening to Richard talk, you know. And, but, and the other was Jack Benny because I believe that a person is an artist in any endeavor, if you're a truck driver, a bricklayer, a bartender, if you make your work look one word, effortless. Jack Benny made comedy look easy. You know, he made it look effortless. Frank Sinatra made singing look easy. You will be my music. You will be my song. You say, I can do that. No, you can't. He just made it look like you could. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's, that's what, what Jack Benny made comedy look easy, and it isn't, you know. So I, I, those are the people that I admire. Many others, Bob Hope and when I was growing up and, and, and became friends with Bob and, and George Burns and, you know, used to roast George Burns on the Dean Martin roast. Uh, these are old school comedians who worked very clean and they had great timing and delivery, you know. And, and so I, emul- I, I emulated them when I started and became my own stand-up, you know. Absolutely. And I, I can say, too, I think you, uh, the things that you looked in, into them for, I also think you exemplify in your work as well. Uh, you know, it's interesting. We were just talking the other day. Uh, I was talking to some of my coworkers. We were talking about stand-up. Um, and I said, you know, I, I really enjoy a clean act because I, I like the idea that a family can all, go all together to watch a comedian and all laugh together. Whereas, you know, it, and sometimes you'll see an act that, you know, when they swear or sometimes it's almost like an easy laugh if they just swear or we all know that one word that everyone uses for an adjective, too, <laughs> in, in some stand-ups. Uh, so I really enjoy a clean act, but I also think the things you looked for and those uh, comedians, I also think you exemplify in your work as well, Mr. Dreesen. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story, <clears throat> quick story. I, was, I try out new material at the Laugh Factory all the time here in Hollywood. When I come off the road, I'm always writing new material because I, I, I do so many different types of shows, you know. But So I'm always working on new material. And... and uh, so I, I go over to the Laugh Factory, and w- one night I was around the corner, and they were getting ready to start the show, and two young comedians on the other side of the corner didn't know that I was there. And one of them said to the other one, he said, hey, you know, Tom Dreesen is here. And the other comedian said, yeah, he's old school. And the other comedian said, what do you mean he's old school? He said, well, he doesn't use the F word. And the other comedian said, he doesn't use the F word. What does he use for adjectives? And I stuck my head around the corner, and I said, adjectives. <laughs> That's what I use for adjectives. But, but it, it, it's a classic example. See, the problem with that word is is that it's a noun, it's a pronoun, it's an adjective, it's an adverb. Whenever you can't think of anything funny, you go there. The young comedians do today. Absolutely. And when I started out, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah, have you ever been on Johnny Carson? If you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. You might want to be a comedian. You might going to be a comedian, but you weren't one now in the eyes of America till you did the Johnny Carson show. So you, you would watch that show and say, well, how can I get on that show? And you realize you had the right material that could make grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and the kids laugh. You know, and so that's what we did. We focused in on that show and start writing that kind of material. Cable television wasn't out in those days. 
And once cable television came along and you could work as filthy as you want, you know, that became the norm. See, young kids today, they go to comedy clubs when they're 18 or 19, and that's the first thing they're introduced to is that kind of material. So they think, oh, that's comedy. You know, and by the way, it is. I'm not a prude. I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm a street guy and the next GI. I mean, I know every dirty joke there is, and, and I can do a stag roast with the best of them. But I was a businessman, too. We're in show business. That's two words, show and business. I knew by working clean, <clears throat> you know, I could get on The Tonight Show. <clears throat> and there's only really one rule in comedy, be funny. That's the only rule we have. So <clears throat> if you're working what we call blue, whenever you hear a comedian say they work blue, that means they work they, they use swear words, you know. Um, so if you, if, if you can make a living working blue, well, God bless you. But young kids today think that's what comedy is, whereas in my day, we thought comedy was Bob Hope, Jack Benny, Bill Cosby, uh, uh, you know, uh, comics that work clean. Richard Pryor did, like, 50 Merv Griffin shows clean and Ed Sullivan shows before he ever went blue, you know. But I, I don't say it's right or wrong. I just say that it's the easiest form of comedy to, to work dirty, you know. Sure, absolutely. Alrighty, folks, we're in, we're in studio with uh, Mr. Tom Dreesen discussing his career, comedy, and then later on we're going to get even more in-depth in uh, um, some of our other questions I have set up. So stick around. Uh, we'll be here until 5 o'clock. We're just going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after these messages. Alrighty, folks, we're back. Uh, again, we'll be here until 5 o'clock. We are talking with Mr. Tom Dreesen about his career, comedy, uh, his entire life. Uh, you know, uh, Mr. Dreesen, you had said something, and I, I wanted to share this story, too. Um, you said, you know, the goal of comedy is to be funny. And the other day I was talking with a buddy of mine, and, we were, you know, he goes, you know, he would, and I don't want to say the specific name of the comedians because he kind of took a jab at it, but he goes, do you think this person's funny? I said, honestly, it doesn't matter because if I don't find someone funny, it doesn't mean they're not funny because out there they have an audience that likes them. They have a you know specific fan that enjoys them. So I really like how you said, you know, the goal is be funny because it's hard to say, you know, is this guy funny or not? Because to someone he is, you know, so I really like um, how you just say that because it, it is. I mean, that's the goal to make someone laugh. And it's because just because one person in the audience isn't laughing doesn't mean it's not funny. Well, comedy is subjective. I mean, it really is. <clears throat> Some people like monologists. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Some people like, um, you know, slapstick. <clears throat> Everybody has a different um, sense of humor. You know, I mean, we all are, we're, all, we're all different. So what makes you laugh may not make me laugh. You know, I always used to say, people say, are you funny? I say, is the guy in the second row with the green shirt laughing? And they look out there and they go, no. I say, then I'm not funny. But the woman next to him <clears throat> is really laughing. I say, well, then I am funny. <clears throat> but they say, but the guy next to her is not. And I say, well, then I'm not funny. <laughs> yeah, because I, I know it's so true because, you know, you mentioned uh, slapstick. And I remember when I was uh, finishing up my undergrad, I was, I, I had the seasons. One day my parents, uh, one Christmas, my parents, or I can't remember if it was a Christmas or a birthday, uh, but my parents surprised me with uh, all the seasons from the Three Stooges. And before I went to bed, because you know, I, I always used to say it's always nice to, uh, laugh at least once a day or laugh right before you go to bed so i used to always put a dvd in and watch a couple episodes and my buddy you know some of my buddies would come like well, it's not funny i go it's not funny to you but i find it hilarious or like you know the old abbott and Costello, uh their sketches i mean i just i just can i can want, sit there and just watch these clips and just laugh hysterically and then some people are just like that's not funny I'm like it's not funny to you <laughs> yeah. you know jay leno used to have a bit in his act he said that the difference between men and women are 
Men think the Three Stooges are really funny, and women think they're stupid. (laughs) (laughs) There's some truth behind that, though, because I'm thinking about the people that said it wasn't funny, and predominantly there were a majority of females that would say this is stupid or it's not funny. Well, again, it's so personal. That's that's why I I love stand-up comedy. I still enjoy doing it 50 years in the business. I, I look forward to going back up on stage and, and, uh, and I, I don't throw up before every performance or rant and rave. Or, you know, I, I really enjoy making people laugh. I wrote a poem years ago that I won't do for you, but the, the beginning is, as far back as I can remember, or shortly thereafter, I love to hear the sound of laughter. And, uh, and, so, and, and it goes on and on. And, and uh, uh, you know, but I won't do it for you, but some other time I'll, I'll read you the poem. Absolutely. Um, so some of the other questions I had uh, were... Kind of specific. Uh, I'm curious if you can remember a, a time where you laughed the hardest in your life. Is there a specific time where you just could not stop cracking up? Well, you know, <clears throat> I've had moments. I mean, certainly watching comedians. I loved comedians before I was one. I always loved stand-up comedians. And I remember watching Richard Pryor on the Ed Sullivan show with four of my buddies. We were, we were laying in the living room floor and watching Richard Pryor, and I laughed till my stomach hurt and, and always was a big fan. And later, you know, became friends with Richard. And, uh, uh, and when I did my album, That White Boy is Crazy, I did an album in front of an all-black audience. I'm the only white comedian ever to do an album in front of an all-black audience called That White Boy is Crazy. You know, Richard loved that album, and he used to joke me about it all the time. But, but you know, uh, that, that I remember that, you know, just laying on the floor laughing so hard. But also, there were embarrassing times I was doing a film one time, and we were, we were um, out in Wisconsin, and it was an industrial film. I was a new comedian at the time, and I was with the comedy team, but I was also an actor. I've done acting and film and stuff. And so we went out, and, and for five days we filmed in the ice cold out in Wisconsin in the wintertime. And then our last scene was in a cabin in, in, by a fireplace, and, and I had the, it was a one-camera shoot in the room, and, 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 and I had the last scene. And I got the giggles over something so stupid that I wouldn't even explain it to you, but I couldn't stop laughing. And I tried to, I, I, I guess I was exhausted, tired, and worn out from the whole week's shoot, and now this is, we're finally getting ready to wrap, and the director and everybody, and I got where I couldn't look at the guy, the actor who was feeding me the lines. It was something about it that just made me, and I, and I was uncontrollably laughing to the point where they were getting angry at me but I, and, and it took me the longest time to shoot that scene, you know, but that happens sometimes in acting, you know. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. There was, a, there was one time, uh, this might have been my senior year of college, and, you know, they had asked me if, if I could help with a play, and I said, you know, one play that I would love to do is 12 Angry Men. And so they, uh, that was the goal, but essentially they didn't do it. It didn't pass. It didn't get voted in. So they said, could you help us do this other play? So me saying, I already said I would, so I'm not going to bail on the guy. Uh, but I had told everyone prior to the show, or probably during rehearsal, I would never do it in the show, uh, but they, I go, my goal is to have everyone here break character eventually. <laughs> and they said, you can't do that. I go, I bet you I could. So I remember, uh, and they actually hired an outside director for this, but I would there was a scene where, uh, we, you know, we would sit down on the couch and, you know, they were um, 
someone's lines, you know, sounded like a specific word or whatever. And I would just keep whispering it, whispering. And sure enough, everyone eventually broke character. But uh, it's just, you know, laughter is just a great thing. I know you've talked about it's literally scientifically proven that uh, laughing is actually beneficial to our health. No, no. You know, we've always heard, you know, laughter is the best medicine. The truth is that laughter now scientifically has been proven to be a healing component in your in your in your life here first of all if you're laughing you know i tell young comedians all the time do you know how important you are to our society that you can make people laugh that you're a rare commodity the number one fear they did a survey around the world years ago for eight years of the ten fears of man and death was fourth pain was second getting up in front of an audience was the number one fear of mankind if you can get up in front of an audience as a a radio broadcaster, as a painter, as a lawyer, a doctor, whatever, uh, a bartender, a bricklayer, if you can get up and talk in front of an audience for one hour, you're in less than 1% of the population of the world. If you can get up and make people laugh for one hour, you're in less than one millionth of 1% of the population of the world. So I tell them you're a rare commodity. And, you know, and why you must do this, that you can make people laugh, and why you must do it, because laughter is healing. Norman Cousins, who wrote who was the editor of the Saturday Review, he was diagnosed with a heart ailment, <clears throat> a terminal illness, and the doctors told him that he didn't have long to live. He, they said it was through stress. Uh, and he laid in the hospital and he thought, if negative input stress made me ill, then positive input should make me well. He checked out of the hospital. He would never watch the evening news, read the papers. He would only watch I Love Lucy reruns, Candid Camera, Three Stooges, W.C. Fields, the Marx Brothers. He'd, he'd watch... He listened to comedy albums. He lived 27 years after the doctors told him he was going to die. Because of Norman Cousins, UCLA did research, and they've always known that laughter is psychologically a deterrent because the brain can't think of two thoughts at the same time. So if you're laughing at a comedian, you're not thinking of your problem, so it's a psychological deterrent. But because uh, UCLA did research that what happens inside the body when the human brain laughs that, that when human body laughs, the brain releases endorphins into the bloodstream, an actual chemical into the bloodstream. So that's why after a hearty laugh, after you've laughed so hard and tears are rolling down your eyes, and you go, oh, this sense of well-being comes over your body, your body's going through an actual chemical change. So is laughter, not only is it psychologically a, a deterrent, it's physiologically therapeutic. So comedians are physicians of the soul. And I tell them, don't tarnish that with alcohol and drugs. Don't destroy the thing that makes you unique in our society. You know? Yeah, and I think uh, I mean, history shows too that uh, you know some of the some of the funniest comedians are uh, are deep down inside some of the saddest ones. I mean, you know, I know you've talked about uh, some of the comedians that have taken their own lives. I mean, one of my favorite comedians, uh, uh, Richard Jenny, for for example. Uh-huh. I mean, he was just. I mean, the, the stuff. And I, I was just telling my buddy this ago, you know, you, a comedian has written good material. When I can watch that now, it, it was funny then, it's funny now, and 10, 20 years from now, it's still going to be funny. Richard Jenny was one of the most prolific stand-up comedians I ever met in my life. I loved him dearly. I was, I was the master of ceremonies at his memorial service out here in Hollywood, and it, it crushed me. I mean, we had 17 comedians going to get up and talk about Richard Jenny, Jay Leno, Ray Romano, I mean, Tim Allen. Uh, Dane Cook, all these comedians got up and all paid tribute to this wonderful Richard Jenny. You know, I, 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 I've known five stand-up comedians who committed suicide. 
you know, 85% of all, and this is my humble opinion, 85% of all stand-up comedians are insecure, neurotic, sometimes psychotic, loved, starved wrecks, absolute wrecks. And the other 15% are gifted, confident people who say, I know how to write a joke and I know how to tell a joke. I like to think that I'm in the latter, but never trust somebody that tells you they're sane. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it's, tra- it's sad. I, I, I've known five great stand-up comedians who committed suicide, Richard Jenny being one, of course, Robin Williams being another, Freddie Prince being another, um, you know, uh, uh, Ray Combs, who was a, a real good comedian, you know, uh, Steve Lebeckin, <clears throat> a comedian friend of mine. Not only that, many have destroyed their lives with alcohol and drugs. So it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful gift, but it brings some of the most tortured to the profession, you know. And that's why I give motivation speeches all around the country to corporate America. I speak on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. I also give this to comedians in New York and Boston and Philadelphia. Whenever I assemble a group of comedians, I call it the joy of stand-up comedy and how to get there. Because I teach them, enjoy this journey that you're on. You're making people laugh all over the country. Enjoy the journey. Don't fret and grind and moan and worry about, you know, I'm not as far as the guy that I started out with and et cetera, et cetera. And I did, you know, uh, if you can make people laugh, enjoy that journey. Even if you never become a big, big star, you still are making a living, making people laugh. Absolutely. Alrighty, folks, we are in studio uh, talking with Mr. Tom Dreesen about his career, comedy, and uh, later on we're going to get into uh, some other questions. We're going to take a quick break right now, and we'll come back, and we have uh, some more uh Comedy questions, and then later on we'll talk more about uh, some advice for uh, up-and-coming comedians and also some uh, current projects. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Alrighty, welcome back, folks, to the Paul Sargero Show. Again, we're going to be here until 5 o'clock today uh, talking with Mr. Tom Dreesen. Uh, Mr. Dreesen, before the break, you mentioned... Um, kind of the motivational speeches you do for uh, comedians and uh, you know you made a point to say you know don't worry about the other guy and I remember seeing parts of the speech where you elaborate and say you know am I a better person than I was last year am I a better father I mean that's really ultimately the goal how to how to view uh, kind of one's life I would think well there's a great Hindu proverb and that's what I tell the comedians there's a Hindu proverb that said there's nothing noble about being superior to another man True nobility lies in being superior to your former self. Am I a better friend than I was last year? Am I a better father than I was last year? Am I a better son than I was last year? Am I a better comedian than I was last year? Your only competition is with your former self. You're not in competition with another artist, another person. Most comedians, that's the trap they fall in. They'll say, gee, I started out with Paul, and now Paul's, he, Paul just got on the Jimmy Fallon show, and, and I started out before him. Or I said, you know, they, they compare themselves to another human being. That, that's a trap. Don't ever fall into that trap. There's nothing noble about being superior to another man. True nobility lies in being superior to your former self. Check your tapes from last year. Am I better? Am I growing as an artist? Try to, you know, people will say to me, I I could stand in front of you right now and tell you, Paul, I'm a success. And and my critics would say, oh, you're a success. You're not a success. You started out with David Letterman and Jay Leno. You know, they're your buddies, and you start out with them, and look, they've got millions of more dollars than you'll ever have, and far more fame than you'll ever have. I was never in competition with David Letterman or Jay Leno. They're my good buddies, you know, 
but I was I was always in competition with me. I wanted to be the best Tom Dreesen comedian I could be, you know. So so again, that's a trap you fall in. Never try to you know com- compete with somebody else. Just your former self, you know. And, and it's, it's up to you. It's entirely up to you. And this just might be all you ever need to know. That it's entirely up to you. You know, um, no one is in charge of your happiness, but you. You know, no one is in charge of your happiness but you. Another thing I teach the comedians, I say all the time, wisdom is avoiding all the thoughts that weaken you. You know, that's what true wisdom is. You know the negative thoughts that come flowing into your mind about your career or things like that. Cast them out of the, out of your mind because they weaken you. You know, wisdom is learning to avoid those thoughts that weaken you, you know. Absolutely. I, I, uh, we, we, I just had, I just celebrated my 25th birthday and I was telling a friend of mine, I go, you know, there was something I was, I always heard growing up that always stuck with me. And it was, I'd always talk to, uh, my father's a baker. So I'd always be at, uh, at the donut shop kind of talking to the older people all the time. And they would always say, I wish I knew then what I know now. And that, that stuck with me. Cause I said, you know what, if, if that's the case, th- this person's going to teach me things that he wish he knew now. And if I know all those things, when I get older, I'm going to be so wise. Right. So that stuck with me. And then the other day I was at uh, work and, uh, you know, someone was having a bad day. Of, you know, someone said something to him or whatever. I said, don't let others dictate your feelings or how you like your behavior. And they go, wow, yeah, that, that's true. I go, yeah, it's just, you know, that, that's what you hear throughout <laughs> hanging out in the donut shops talking to the, <laughs> the older people. But that was a life lesson that I kind of learned growing up. And I was like, I always lived by that. Don't let others dictate kind of how you feel or, or change the, change your day, you know. I hate when someone says, my day was going too great, and then, then someone said something. Like, so why does that, don't let that bother you. Just brush it off and, and go on with your day, you know. Well, you know, learn to empower yourself. You know, negative thoughts, <clears throat> you know, you have the power to empower yourself. You know, you, you know you're, you're, you're driving down the road. You're in a good mood. You're in a real good mood. You get up in the morning, you're going, and you're going, you're driving down the road, and, you're, you know, all of a sudden, you're in a sad mood, and you're going, wait a minute, I was just in a good mood. What happened? And you trace your thoughts back. Oh, yeah, I started thinking about uh, Marilyn and that problem we had. Or I started thinking about that argument I had with Paul. That one thought changed the chemistry of your body. You were in a good mood a moment before. So thoughts are powerful things. You know, if you can, if you can control your thoughts, you can control your feelings. And you can. Negative thoughts will enter your mind. They wander all the time in, in the universe. They enter your mind. But you don't have to harbor them and let them grow. You know, you can cast them out. It's like your mind is like a garden. And if you want to plant flowers, you plant flowers in the garden. But what if weeds grow? Do you let the weeds grow? No, you dig the weeds and you throw them out and you replant flowers. Same way with thoughts. Negative thoughts are weeds. They'll come in your mind. You can't stop them. You know, but when they do, you don't have to harbor them and, let them and, and, plant and put more water and help them grow. You can say negative and delete, delete, just like your computer. Delete, you know. Uh, you know, and, 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 and then put a positive thought in there. That gives you the power. You take control of your thoughts. If you can control your thoughts, you can control your feelings, you know. So that's the thing. We mostly think that outside forces dictate our life, you know, and, 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 and you have the power to cast those negative thoughts out of your mind and take control of your destiny, you know. 
Absolutely. There was, uh, I want to uh, jump again to uh, stand up because there was something you had mentioned and I was always curious about. Uh, earlier when we said, you know, there was one day you went out and bombed and the next day you came back and it was perfect. Why do you think that is? How come sometimes one day a comedian could uh, not do so well and the next day it goes great? Is it that they perform different or is it a different audience or how does that really go about? Well, different audience. You know, years ago, I think it was. Um uh, who, what the heck was it, where he said that uh, one of the famous old guys that said uh, there was no such thing as a bad audience, only a bad performer. Well, he's nuts because I've met bad audiences before. You know? <laughs> but but <clears throat> what happens when you're brand new, when you're new, you go out and you bomb, and then you, then you, next time you do pretty good, and then, then you bomb, and then you do pretty good, and then, then you do pretty good, and you do pretty good, and then you bomb. And then, you know, pretty soon you'll start getting consistent, and pretty soon you'll start getting in control and consistent and then once you are once you have uh, consistently you know scored for you know 10 12 14 15 times in a row then you realize that you're starting to become a professional you know and so when you do have a bad night or a bad audience you don't let it throw you anymore you, know, you in the earlier days you thought the audience was the judge and the jury so when you have a bad night you go oh my god maybe i'm not right for this business maybe i don't belong maybe i shouldn't be here but, you know, as time goes by and you become a veteran and a pro, you'll just shrug it off and say, it was a bad night. I didn't do well tonight. They didn't do, you know, you know uh, they, were, they were a tough crowd or, or you know, it, who knows what it was. But as time goes by, you will consistently start scoring more to your pro. And, and then, then you let it like water off a duck's back if you're having a bad night. You know, someday, hey, I, I make this, <laughs> this might be a terrible analogy for your show, but when I'm talking to young comedians, I say, look, a lot of times it's like sex. You go out there some nights and you're really, really, really good. But the <laughs> audience is not. And some nights the audience is really, really good and you're not. You're not on that night, but they're really good. But some nights you're good and they're good at the same time. And that's when it's the best. You know? uh, and, uh, and sometimes the show goes by really fast and sometimes it drags. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there, there's no describing. Stand-up comedy is the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. There's no describing what it's like uh, to be out, like I used to open for Frank with 20,000 people, and you go out in front of an arena, and, and you're going to go out in front of 20,000 people, and you're going to give them your thoughts and your ideas with your timing and your delivery, and when you get them caught up in your rhythm and it works, and you score, and you get these 20,000 people all around you in the, in, the, in the round laughing, there's no describing how high that feeling is. When you walk off that stage, whoa, that's the highest of highs. And when it doesn't work, the lowest of lows. Yeah. Is there, um, yeah, if there's a comedian listening right now, is there any advice you'd give, um, you know, when you're doing your act and sometimes, you know, you hit the punchline and it's, it's silence for an up-and-coming comedian, is there a tip uh, you would to try and help a comedian during those times instead of making it you know, almost awkward for them? Well, here, first of all, and talking to a comedian, I would tell them what I just told you earlier about the Hindu proverb, there's nothing noble about being superior to another man. True nobility lies in being superior to yourself. That don't try to compete, create. You know, don't compete, you know, with other comedians. Create material. There's two great days in a person's life. That's the day we're born and the day we discover why. The day that I realized that I wanted to be a stand-up comedian was the greatest day in my life, other than my children being born and stuff like that. But there are two great days in a person's life. That's the day you're born and the day you discover why. And if you dis 
discover that you want to be a stand-up comedian, then I tell you, go for it. That's my advice to you. Go for it. Never be afraid to try something new. You know, remember, amateurs built the ark, but professionals built the Titanic. You know, so don't, don't be afraid to always try something new. And, and what you'll do is when, when, you, when you're a new comedian, you'll start out emulating another comedian. I, I, I watch comedians, new comedians sometimes, and I'll say, oh, he likes Jerry Seinfeld. Or, gee, um, uh, you know, I can tell that, that uh, she likes Elaine Boozler or, or different. I'll, I'll see different girl comedians or guy comedians, and I can pretty much see who they liked when they, you know, they, they sort of emulate when they're brand new. But as time goes by, you slowly become you. Picasso said, try to paint like another artist, I dare you. In doing so, you'll fail, but you'll find out who you are as an artist. And so what happens with young comedians, they go, get up on stage early and they start doing an impression of a stand-up comedian. And then after a while, they let a little bit of them out. And if it doesn't get left, they go back inside and they keep doing the impression. And then one night, they, maybe they, in an ad lib, they'll let a little bit of them out and it gets a laugh. And that gives them a little confidence and they let a little bit more of them out and it gets a laugh. And pretty soon they become themselves on stage. You know, Candid Camera had one of the great lines, caught in the act of being yourself. When new comedians ask me sometimes, gee, I'm going on this show or that show, well, do you have any advice? I say, yeah, be yourself. Caught in the act of being yourself. There's never been anyone like you on this planet. No one else had your mom and dad, your environment, your growing up. You know, so you're unique. You're unique as a snowflake. Keep that in mind, you know, and, and just get caught in the act of being yourself. You know, and, and uh, again, you know, uh, never be afraid to fail. Just keep doing it, doing it, doing it to you, till you get it right, you know. Absolutely. Um, it was, uh, before we go to break, I had one more question, because uh, I saw an interview before uh, where it, it was it was funny, because like, just nonchalant, I think you were talking about maybe a, a time you were on The Tonight Show, and you mentioned something, like, oh, you know, I got 11, 11 applauses, and, and then that was kind of, it was it, but I'm curious, uh, how did, uh, knowing the amount of applauses you got, how did that start? Or, you know, you just keep, was it just something you just always kept track of? Or was it someone says something no, to you? you know, I, I only did that really mainly for the first night show because it was, first of all, when you're on, on national, there's no describing the pressure of doing that first night show in those days. One appearance on the Tonight Show, your whole life changed. One appearance, Freddie Prince got a sitcom the next day. I did one appearance. I was in the unemployment line. The next day, CBS signed me to a development deal. A guy named Lee Curlin out of New York signed me to a development deal. My whole life changed. From that one appearance, so the pressure is an, is enormous, you know. Uh, and when you walked out there, when I walked out there, in the, into that, it's like walking into a surgical room. The bright lights hit you in the face. You can't see the audience, and and 22 million to 25 million people watched the show in those days, you know. And I did a couple jokes, got a laugh, got a laugh, and that, then I got a, a round of applause. See, audiences sometimes when. Let me digress. When you're writing a joke, comedy is nine tenths surprise. The audience laughs because they didn't think you were going to say that or do that. So the setup line has to hide the punchline. So comedy is nine-tenths surprising. The other rule is there are no victimless jokes. Who's the victim in a joke? The government, the airlines? The... Who are you talking about? So yourself, you know. So when you, when you surprise an audience and they laugh and applaud, you know, that's, that's, that's a, a laugh is one thing, but when they laugh and applaud, that means they really appreciated it, you know. And, and so that, that's that first Tonight Show was... When I, when I mentioned it, it uh, I got like, I think it was eight or nine applause, whatever it was. But uh, that, that really inspired me to keep moving on, you know. 
Absolutely. Alrighty, folks, we're in uh, uh, in studio with uh, Mr. Tom Dreesen talking about his career, comedy, and we're going to get more. We still have a we're going to be here until five o'clock. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll get into more uh, material. So uh, stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Alrighty, folks, welcome back again to the Paul Sargero show. Uh, we're talking with uh, Mr. Tom Dreesen about his career, comedy, and uh, we're going to uh, continue on. We'll be here until five o'clock today. Um, Mr. Dreesen, a couple more questions that uh, I was curious of. And, you know, I've, I've watched your material. I mean, from the, the Tonight Show to, you know, what you do at the, uh, the Comedy Store and, and, and et cetera. And I'm just, the stuff you've done, Soul Train especially, the, the material you've done then, I, I mean, I, it's still funny today. So I'm curious, uh, you, you know, what's your creative process like? How do you, how does, like, the development of material start? Well, you know, the way it always works for me um, is is that, that, you know, first of all, I always thought funny. My my mind, even when I was an altar boy, if I was serving Mass at a funeral, you know, my mind would say, gee, wouldn't it be funny if the pallbearers were carrying out and the handle broke? And <laughs> my mind would always be thinking that kind of crazy kind of stuff. But um, I also, you know, if I say this to young comedians. If you're going to become a comedian, study the masters. If you're going to become a brain surgeon, you wouldn't just study brain surgery. You'd go watch the brain surgeons operate. And that's the same way with me, that I used to watch other comedians work and see, oh, how they went from one point to another point or one segue to another segue. So, you know, that, that, that helped me become even more creative. Now, what works for me is it's a strange thing that works for me, is necessity is the mother of invention. So sometimes when I had a deadline, I had to write some funny stuff for the Tonight Show. You know, I, I would, I would, when I got carte blanche there, when, when they, the Tonight Show knew that I was going to deliver each time that I went on there, I could call them and tell them, <clears throat> I can do March 18th. And they'd say, okay, we got you down. Now, I didn't have the first joke written. They wanted a new monologue every time you did the Tonight Show. So I would force myself, I'd, I'd call ahead and say, okay, put me down. It'd be three weeks from today. Well, the moment I now am you know, locked in on that date, now my brain is constantly working on new material. I would force myself to sit down every night and, and, and uh, put myself in a position where I had to come up with new material. And I do that for corporations and things like that. When certain corporations hire me, I'll get information about their their company and stuff, and then now I'm forced to come up with something creative, and you know, so I have to, you know, that's just the way that. The, also, always keep a pencil and paper, a pen and paper in your pocket. Today you got your cell phone, because funny thoughts flip, flip in your mind out of nowhere. Sometimes in a car, sometimes you're sitting at lunch with some people or dinner, or on the golf course, and some guy says something, and your brain goes, "Ooh, I know how to make that funny. I can turn that." And so. Keep, so you got to write it down immediately or you'll forget it. You know, I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes with thoughts and I quick write them down just the way my brain works, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and throughout uh, your career, the, you know, the 50 years, obviously, is, is there a favorite bit you have, uh, th- you know, a favorite joke that, uh, whether it be someone else or your own, is there something that, you know, uh, is like your go-to or you just always loved it? Well, I would never do somebody else's material, but... but uh, <clears throat> there's one joke, <clears throat> there's so many, there's, I, I've written thousands of jokes, but, you know, uh, in my years in, in comedy, sometimes the funniest thing is an ad lib that just comes out of nowhere when you're on stage in Las Vegas 
or something like that, something that, you know, you've got a stream of consciousness going in that area, and boom, something pops out, you know. But there's a joke that almost all comedians have one standard joke that, say the audience isn't good that night, um, and, and, you know, they're not, you, you don't feel like they're right with you, and, but you go to that one go-to joke that will always get a laugh. And if that doesn't get a laugh, then you know it's the audience. It's not you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> but I had one joke that I wrote years ago, and I still do it even to this day sometimes. Is I talk about I went back to a school reunion, and one of my teachers came up to me, and he said, you don't remember me. But I said, yes, I do. Your name is Richard Bruno, and you teach algebra. He said, that's amazing. I said, listen to this, x to the fifth power times x to the fifth power is x to the tenth power, because in algebra, you don't multiply exponents, you add them. He said, that's incredible. I said, you know what else is incredible? That's the first time I've ever been able to use that since you taught it to me. (laughs) (laughs) And it will always get a laugh, and it uh, it almost always is, you know. So that's my, uh, that's a joke I wrote a long time ago, but I've thrown it in off and on. You know, there's a lot of other things that, Jokes that for the time were funny, you know. When I was in Iraq performing for the troops, there might be something there that would only be funny there that moment. I would get some information from the um, from the the the, the uh, first sergeant or, or or the general on the base, and then I would go out and and they and do this particular piece of material about their base <clears throat> that they wouldn't they couldn't believe that I knew about. When I toured with Frank Sinatra, and I've done this my whole career. I would oftentimes, we'd fly in this private jet, all of the jet would land in squad cars and limousines would rush us to the arena. I would sometimes sit up in front with the limo driver. Frank would say, what the hell are you doing? I would take my notepad and I'd ask the limo driver, tell me the name of the mayor. Tell me the name of the governor. Tell me the name of, you know, is there anything that happened in town here in the last couple of weeks that everybody in town knows about? Some problems at the town. And I would sketch these ideas down and then open with a couple of jokes about that community. And, 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 and we would say, we just landed, you know, half an hour ago, and we're on stage here, and then I would come up with some knowledge about their community they couldn't believe that I knew. So it would be hysterical to them. In another city it wouldn't be, but, but, but at that moment, you know, so that's, that's, you know, I could give you a lot of examples, but that's one of them. Absolutely. And uh, th- throughout your time, uh, obviously you had a remarkable career. Is there a moment in your career that, that you're most proud of, that that's always stuck to you, and you're like, you know what, I'm glad that you were able to accomplish a specific thing? Well, there, <clears throat> there's so many <clears throat> at different times, but, <clears throat> excuse me, without a doubt, that first appearance on that Tonight Show, uh, because it was a game changer, there was that, 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 that I seized the moment, that, that you know, that, that happens in baseball, that... Sometimes a guy's hitting 142, and he looks like he's going to go back to the minors, and somebody gets injured, and somebody else gets injured, and he gets in the game, and all of a sudden he hits two out of, he hits a home run, and, and he gets two or more, and his whole life changed. My struggles in my whole career, you know, the hard times I had. My wife left me two, three times. She hated show business, but I kept getting her back, and the kids, and I miss my kids so bad. But finally, that first appearance on The Tonight Show turned my life around. And that I scored that night. I got bumped three times in a row. Every time I'd go there and get put in makeup, go, go down to the, the, the green room, they'd run out of time. I'd come back a week later. I'd come back a week later. The fourth time I went to the Tonight Show, I was in the makeup room, and Fred de Cordova came in, the producer, and he said, I got some bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. Now, 
again, 25 million people watching that show, and none of that. Your mother's got everybody in the old neighborhood watching. If you bomb, you can't even go back home. You know, but you, you, you suck it up, and you seize the moment. They opened that curtain. I went out, and I scored. And, and I, I, that night, I, I can't even, I was on cloud nine. You know, my phone never stopped ringing. I, and the next day, William Moore signed me, uh, CBS signed me to a development deal. I started doing Dinah Shore, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, Hollywood Scores, all those shows I was doing, you know, $20,000 Pyramid. My whole life changed from that one appearance. So certainly that has to rank high up, you know. The other is being a kid shining shoes in bars and hearing Sinatra on the jukebox, you know, and when I was a bartender, hearing him sing Come Fly With Me, and all of a sudden I was flying with him all over the world, sitting across from him in the jet. And, and he was saying, good show tonight, Tommy. We're going to knock him dead when we get to Chicago. And those kind of, I mean, just those things were so surreal. You know, they were, they were moments. You know, you're, you're gracing the same stage with Frank Sinatra, you know, with Sammy Davis Jr. I mean, uh, these were the highlights. Yeah, those are moments like that that I'll never forget. Career moments, you know. Absolutely. Alrighty, folks, we are in studio with Mr. Tom Dreesen discussing his career, his life, comedy, and uh, we have a few more questions and a few more topics to get through. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we will be uh, right back. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Alrighty, folks, we're back again. We are in studio with Mr. Tom Dreesen discussing his career, comedy, and uh, kind of the projects that he's working on. But as al- as always, I always like to, the show is educational. I always like to make sure our listeners leave with either p- a piece of advice or something they have, uh, you know, have learned something by the end of the show. So I would like to uh, ask you, Mr. Dreesen, if you could go back to your younger self and give yourself a piece of advice, uh, what would you want to tell yourself? Uh, you know, I probably, you know, I, 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 I guess, you know, when, when you think about, um, if I could go back, you know, what advice I'd give it probably be, you know, one thing would be my children to spend more time with my children, because what happens when you're in pursuit of a career like me or any other artist, it's almost a selfish move because it's what you want more than anything in the world. You want this. You want to be this stand-up comedian or this singer or whatever it is, and you want it so bad, and that means you're going to be gone a lot. You're going to be out struggling a lot. Your kids, they just want a dad. They don't care if you're a coal miner. They don't care what you are. So it's your dream, not theirs. You know. So in pursuit of my career, there were a lot of times I could have been at home more and spent more time with them, but, but I didn't. So I think that... If I could give myself advice, it would be the treasure to spend more time. And there were even other times when I, that I, I'm ashamed to say this, but when I'd come off the road and maybe I could spend some time with my kids and I had to go to the corner bar with the guys and get to telling stories and drinking a few beers and, 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 and I should have been home with them. Um, it, 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 my kids today, you know, they'll tell you that I'm a good dad and all that. And, they, and, and I got an award a while back, Father of the Year and stuff. But in my heart, I know that I didn't deserve that. I'm not the best, I wasn't the best father that I, that I could have been. If I could ask God for one favor, just one favor, I'd say, God, could I have my children just for one day, my three children, just for one day as little children again? I wouldn't sleep for one second. I, I, would, I would just sit and, and hug them and kiss them and go to the park, and I'd just spend 24 as little children because it flew by so fast. 
you know, it just they're all grown now, and I have grandchildren, you know. So I, that would be the advice that it would be to, to spend more time with my children. That would be the advice I'd give myself, you know. Absolutely. I, I know before you mentioned that a, uh, you know, a great comedian can make an audience laugh and cry. And I, I think uh, our, our, our listeners are probably touched by that one. And the, the waterworks might be uh, building up right now. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it just, it's hard to describe how fast it flies. You know, and, and they were just, yesterday, they were, they were just little babies and now they're grown, you know. And, you know, I, I, I used to read, um, when I was in the Navy, I read, I was an avid reader. And I always came across these two words, unconditional love. And I didn't really quite understand how love could be unconditional. But the day they handed me my firstborn, my daughter Amy, when they handed me that little girl, those two words stuck in my mind. I knew I would love this child. Nothing could ever make me stop loving this child. And to this day, she's a grown woman now, a children grown. When she walks in the door, my I light up, my whole body lights up. I know now what that means you know and i do that for all my children but but when i got my firstborn i realized what that it was you know um that that's 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 a hard part like i say in pursuit of a career or any goal that you're going to neglect those children whether you like it or not you know absolutely and and if you could talk to uh an up-and-coming comedian uh right now uh you know if you could give them one piece of advice what would you what would you tell that comedian well, you know, like I said, so many things I said earlier, <clears throat> you know, study the masters, you know, but choose this life, this standard. It's almost like a calling, you know, that I can teach you a lot of things about stand-up comedy, and I do. I, I teach at USC, UCLA, Cal State Northridge sometimes. I, I, I talk to young comedians all over the country, but I can teach you a lot of things, stage presence, mic technique. I can teach you how to write a joke and, and stuff. I can't teach you timing. You either have it or you don't. So if you have timing, you know, this is a God-given gift. <clears throat> I would tell them, don't destroy that. You know, don't destroy that. You know, um, you know, as I said earlier, the brain is the most important part of a comedian's body. Don't destroy that with drugs and alcohol. You've got a gift, you know. Uh, that you can make people laugh. And, and then I'd also tell them, if that's your dream, don't let anybody get in the way of your dream. Don't let anybody stop you. It, it, here, let me, let me even digress a little bit. This goes for all people listening. I was on a plane years ago. I first started getting a lot of work. I was doing the Tonight Show. I was working all the time. I was on a plane heading to Boston. It was a six-hour flight, and I had read everything but the air sickness bag, you know. <laughs> and I picked up a magazine, and I, it was about anthropology, and I wasn't interested, but I was just bored, and I was reading... And it was saying that dinosaurs ruled the planet Earth for 250 million years. Dinosaurs ruled this planet 250 million years. Man, in his present form from Cro-Magnum to Neanderthal to now, maybe 150,000 years, 100,000 years, something like that. And that this planet has been here 10 billion years, according to science, and it's going to be here 10 billion more before the sun destroys the Earth, that the Earth is moving closer to the sun, and one day the Earth will look not unlike Mars looks like right now. And I put this magazine down, I said, this planet was here 10 billion years before I was born. Not millions, not thousands, not millions, 10 billion. And it's going to be here 10 billion after I die. That means my lifetime on this planet is a blink of an eye, a speck of sand. It's over. That's all it is. That you would spend one moment of that speck of sand bitching and moaning and cursing your lot in life is an absurdity. That you would spend one moment of that speck of sand, 
you know, uh, going to a job you hate every day, uh, doing something you don't want to do, is spitting in your master's face saying, I don't appreciate this great gift of life. If you want to be a comedian you're, you, you're, and that's what you really want to be, then this is your blink of an eye. I don't care what your parents think or, you know, what your, what your neighbors think or what your, whatever, if that's what you want to do, you know, and don't let anything get in the way of that. This is your time. You're, you know, I know people to this day who are still trying to please their mom and dad, and their mom and dad have been dead for 20 years. You know, yeah. this is your blink of an eye. Yeah, I know. Uh, I never got to take the course, but I remember when I was in school, uh, this might have been my freshman or so- sophomore year of college, uh, there was a, one of my buddies took a... Uh, it was a coping with uh, life and death class, and one of the assignments he had to do, and I think this is kind of, you know, someone wouldn't have to write it, but you could at least think about it. Um, he had to write an obituary for himself, and the goal was you would want it, you wanted to write how you want to be remembered, and then you kind of evaluate your life to think, am I doing kind of what I want to be remembered for or what my goal in life is? You know, so when he mentioned that, it was that was I it was it was opening because I was like, you know, it's something I never thought about. You know, so it's uh, I always think I always tell people like think about that or you know what would you want said at your eulogy or, or, or you know, and it's it's kind of a depressing topic, but at the same time, it can be uh, eye opening at the same time. You know, well, it's a reality. <clears throat> Whether you like it or not, everybody on this planet is going to be gone one day, <clears throat> and, and 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 the reality is is that we're just here for a blink of an eye. I always said, whenever I was asked, what would you like on your tombstone, he was a good father. I, I, would, I, I would hope that, that that would be my goal. That, I mean, and I'm still trying to be the best father I can be. I'll be with all my kids tomorrow and my grandkids, you know. And, and I, I relish those moments, you know. Absolutely. And uh, I know uh, we still have a couple more um, uh, questions, obviously. But, uh, you know, being in show business for 50 years, is there something kind of behind the scenes about show business maybe you wish you knew uh when you were starting off like oh man i wish i knew that this would have changed you know i know um you know for example there was one uh, i heard an interview once with uh, billy joel and he you know kind of the song the entertainer where he talks about you know if he doesn't make it they do this or they change the the length of his songs etc is there something kind of behind the scenes uh, about show business that maybe you wish you knew prior to getting involved that probably could have helped or, you know, a lesson you could have learned earlier? Well, you know, <clears throat> the, that, that there is no, I mean, that, that I mean, there's no, it, 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 when people say, is it hard to make it in show business? I say yes, but it's even harder to hang on. You know, there is no one thing that's going to make you a star and keep you that way for the rest of your life. Most people are stars, like five years, ten years. Frank Sinatra was an anomaly. Barbara Streisand, people like that. Frank was a star for over 60 years, you know. And by the way, he taught me something that I, I I pass on to young people all the time. He said to me, Tommy, there was a time when I was the hottest thing in show business. This was Frank Sinatra. We were on his private jet. He was saying to me, there was a time, Tommy, I was the hottest thing in show business. I could pick up the phone and talk to any, call any recording company in America, any agent in America, any agency, any manager, and they would take my call immediately. He said, Tommy, I could call the President of the United States, and he would take my call. That's how hot I was. He said, then I got cold. My career got cold, and all of a sudden, I couldn't get arrested. He said, and I went cold and, and, and and, and, and all these, I would call these managers in recording studios and places like that, and they wouldn't take my call. He said, and then I got hot again. 
about three years later, I got hot. He said, I'd be at a party, and I'd look across the room, and there would be that guy that wouldn't take my call. And I'd look at him, and he couldn't look me in the eye. He put his head down. He said, but what he didn't realize is that now I realize we're in show business. I couldn't do business for him. That's why he didn't take my call. He said, it was my fault. I thought we were friends. Wow. And, and, and that, I, that I wish I knew, that all these people, that when you have some an agents or managers, they're not all your friends. They're business people. You know, and, and uh, you know, that, that's, that, that's one. And the other thing that, that I, I wish I knew, you know, when I started out, is that, you know, that, that it, it isn't the end of the world when it doesn't work. You know, it, it's just, it, everything is a stepping stone. We learn from everything, in show business especially, every, every mistake you make, it's a learning process, you know. And, 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 and again, I wish I would have learned to enjoy the journey a little bit more. I do today, but, but in those days, you know, everything was, I got to get this, I got to get that, I got to get this. If I don't get that, you know, uh, you know, uh, take a deep breath, sit back, and, and, and say, enjoy these moments. These are all stepping stones, you know. Absolutely. Folks, we are in studio with uh, Mr. Tom Dreesen discussing comedy, his career, advice uh, for, uh, you don't even have to be a comedian to have learned something today or even take a piece of advice. This advice is going for uh, everyone and anyone listening. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, then we're, we're going to come back and talk more about some projects, uh, current workings, and a few more questions. So stick around, folks. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back, folks, of course, to the Paul Sargero Show, 430, 62 degrees in Attleboro. Uh, we are in studio with uh, Mr. Tom Dreesen discussing his career, uh, comedy, and then current projects, of course. Uh, you know, the other day uh, we were talking, I was talking to a guy at my work, and we were talking about kind of favorite celebrities. And, uh, you know, he, you know, picked some mu uh, a music producer that he liked. And obviously uh, one of my favorite, of course, is Tom Dreesen. Uh, but not, be not because he just makes me laugh and, and teaches us lessons, but it's what, to me, what a celebrity does kind of with their publicity, with their name, to me means more than what, um, if you will, with the career. So in the sense that he has done so much in the community uh, to give back, and that's kind of, you know, I really appreciate that when a celebrity does it because it's showing that they're using their name for good, if you will, to do in their community. You know, one of the things... Uh, in 2005, Mr. Dreesen received the prestigious uh, Ellis Island Medal of Honor Award for humanitarian uh, service to his country. Uh, Mr. Dreesen, are, are you doing uh, more uh, community involvement projects, or is it you know more uh, kind of your one-man show? Kind of what are your current projects you're, you're working on? Well, I've always been involved in charity. For years, I, I would run 26 miles every year for multiple sclerosis because my sister Darlene had MS. And, and she died from complications thereof. But every year I would run 26 miles while she was alive. And, you know, people would pledge money for every mile I run, and I'd bring celebrities in to Chicago with me to run part of the way. You know, Frankie Avalon and Tony Danza and Frankie Valley and James Darren and, and um, Eddie Marinero and, and uh, gosh, I, I'll ask Betty Thomas from those three blues and, and um, the Chicago Cubs and the Chicago Bears. They would run with me and... Uh, Smokey Robinson's the only one who ran all 26 miles with me. Most of them would run a block or two blocks or something like that. So I, I, that that was my charity for years. And then I would I've done so many different charities, and, and especially for our troops, because I'm, I'm also an ambassador to the Gary Sinise Foundation, helping raise money to build smart homes for our our 
troops that come home uh, disabled from um, in, 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 you know, injuries in there, and some are in wheelchairs and some are not. But, but we, you know, so we build smart homes for them. Uh, that's another project I'm involved in. <clears throat> also, another charity is Illinois Fatherhood Initiative. It's because there are no fathers in the home. There's a, what will destroy America eventually won't be from the outside. If America is destroyed, it will be destroyed from the inside. And the breakdown of the family is probably the, the, the family structure, breakdown of the family structure is going to be the cause of it all. There, there was a time where I grew up at, in Harvey, Illinois, in 1960 area, that 4% of the children being born were being born without a father in the home. Today, over 70% are being born without a father in the home. Today, 3 out of every 10 white children are born without a father in the home, 4.8 out of every Hispanic children born without a father in a home, and seven out of every African, seven out of ten African American home, born without a uh, African American children born are born without a father in a home. And why is that important? Seventy-seven percent of all teenage crimes are created by fatherless teenagers. Seventy-seven percent. Uh, this year in Detroit, I think seventy-five percent of children being born are being born without a father in a home. You know, when I was growing up, my mother there was a mantra in. In Chicago land area, in the Polish neighborhood, the Irish neighborhood, the Italian neighborhood, whatever neighborhood, the, the African-American neighborhood, the mantra was, if a girl gets pregnant, you'll marry her. I was 13 years old. My mother said, if you get a girl pregnant, you'll stand by her. I said, Mom, I'm 13 years old. <laughs> you know, but, but that was the mantra in all the neighborhoods, because if a, a girl got pregnant, the minute that neighborhood would go to her and say, hey, go to that boy and say, can you take care of that child? Because if you don't, we have to. There wasn't the welfare in those days. All of a sudden, the war on poverty, well, intentioned, but well misinformed. If a girl gets pregnant, uh, if a girl has a baby out of wedlock, we'll give her $250 a month. The government will do that. If, if she has two out of wedlock, it's $500. If she had three, it's 750 from three different men. And by the way, if the man who got her pregnant lived in the same home with her, she couldn't get the money. So well-intentioned, but misinformed. It absolutely, to me, destroyed those communities. It, where I was growing up at, if a little boy was running the neighborhood, a thug, and, and stealing purses and robbing stuff, the minute that neighborhood grabbed him and took him home to his father, whether he was Polish, Irish, Italian, black, whatever, they took him home to his father. The men can police that community. All these crimes in Chicago, all these murders, people saying, what is it? It's not rocket science. There are no men in the community. You know, you've got a grandmother standing on a corner, not the mother of these children, a grandmother, the mother sometimes is in jail for different things or drugs. You've got the mother, the poor, or the grandmother, she's trying to protect her children from the gangs, and she's got a broomstick, and the gang's got an AK-47. Who's going to win that fight? Yeah. You know, so that's something I'm real passionate about. I'm passionate about that. I'm, passionate, I'm a patriot. I'm passionate about our military, you know, and that's why I do shows for the military and, and all that stuff. You know, I, I believe if you have a talent and, and you're not doing anything and that your talent can raise money, then, then for that, that cause that you believe in, then you must do it. By the way, Frank Sinatra was the most benevolent human being I ever met in my life. Frank Sinatra sang his songs, and millions of dollars were raised, and Jewish temples were built, and he's not Jewish. He sang his songs, and millions of dollars were raised, and, and Protestant orphanages were built, and he's not Protestant. He sang his songs, and millions of dollars were raised, and thousands of African-American children went to college, and he's not African-American. My mother had a plaque in her kitchen that said, the talent you have is God's gift to you, but what you do with that talent is your gift to God. If that's the truth, I know of no one in my industry that ever did more for their God than Frank Sinatra. Absolutely. There was, um, 
Uh, one project I read about or saw, and uh, you probably could comment a little bit further, is you actually, uh, you and along with a, fellow, a couple other comedians do, uh, you guys feed the homeless as well, right? Every year for almost 40 years now at the Laugh Factory, at Thanksgiving and at Christmas, all the comedians, uh, Jamie Masada, the owner of the Laugh Factory, is just a wonderful man who started this years ago. And every Thanksgiving and every Christmas, all of us comedians go and we do four servings and we'll do four shows. We, we, we feed the homeless, you know, uh, at 1 o'clock, at 3 o'clock, at 5 o'clock, and at 7 o'clock. And, and then we all get up on stage and do shows for them until we each do like 8, 10 minutes, you know. So it's just, it's just it's a, another part of giving back, you know. Except for the grace of God, there go I. I mean, you know, that could be any, any one of us, you know, and, and especially uh, a lot of our veterans who are on the streets today. Yeah, you know, I, I, I always tell people, because sometimes I hear these uh, cynical or pessimistic comments about, uh, you, you know, the, those that are homeless. And I said, guys, it's homeless, the key word. They, at one point, these people had a home. You know, they're just, you know, it, you don't, everyone has a story. You know, I remember when I was, I went to school um, in Washington, D.C., and that's kind of, uh, I went to school for D.C. for a little bit, and that was, it was eye-opening to me because I said, you know, in our nation's capital, there's people sleeping on the, you know, on, on the corner as I walk to go to the ATM. They're on the, you know, they're on these benches there. And, you know, it was eye opening. And I, I said, you know what, I'm going to talk to as many of these individuals as I can because some, I'm going to learn something. And uh, whether they were playing an instrument or something, I'd always say, you know, how are you? And, like, and people would look at me like, why are you talking? I'm like, it's a person. Why are you treating them differently? You know, and I would learn from them, you know, because they said they would have a home. They had families. They had, you know, they were just uh, uncir- like th- these circumstances that they were just uncontrollable. And it, it was it, to me that was just eye opening because I said in our nation's capital. That's kind of where, you know, so I always uh, I'd always say, you know, if you want, you know, you can come in, you know, get, get a, I'll get you a sandwich or something like that to the restaurants that we were next to. And uh you know, they're like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry you're to be bothered. I'm like, wait, he's not bothering me. I'm the one who brought him in here to, to help him, <laughs> you know. And so uh, it was, again, I always I always like to tell people that homeless means at one point they had a home. So uh, kind of keep an open mind and learn something. Even, you know, go out and talk to them because you can learn something from everyone. Yeah, unfortunately, there are people who are, are uh, who really just, you know, they don't want to work or they don't want to go to, a, uh, you know, or they're, they're off their meds or something, so we we get all sorts of mixed, you know. But it, it it's got to be a concern of of everybody because uh, you know, um, you know, it it shouldn't be in a nation as 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 uh, affluent as we are, and and as and as uh, also as hardworking as we are. You know that, that there's a a thing called personal responsibility that people have forgotten about in our society, and that's to take personal responsibility for yourself. You know, and uh, uh, you know, and, and once you do that, once you accomplish that, then we can look out for others. You know, take care of yourself, get yourself together, get yourself in good shape, and then start looking out how you can pay it forward. How can we take care of somebody else? You know, it's just, it's, uh, you know, it's it's stuff that everybody learns in school or in church or something, but but then we get caught up in our own lives and we forget about it. And they're a real reminder when you're walking down the street and there's a guy laying on the sidewalk, you know, and, and you're this poor soul, you know. Uh, God, at one time, he was a little boy in first grade. You know what I mean? She was a, a little yeah. girl in first grade. She was an adorable child, probably graduated in eighth grade in some school somewhere. And, and today, this sadness, you know. Yeah, that's, but, that's so true. 
Um, so uh, in, in terms of uh, future projects, is there something you're looking in the future working on or things you hope to uh, begin working on or kind of what are your goals from, from here on out, if you will? Well, t- Tim and Tom, we wrote a book, Ameri- Tim and Tom, an American Comedy in Black and White, and now we're meeting with producers about doing the film about our life, what it was like touring the nation as America's first black and white comedy team in, in late 1969, 1970, when there were no comedy clubs in America. We worked all black clubs in the North and the South, what they affectionately called the Chitlin Circuit, the black-owned, black-operated nightclubs, the 20 Grand in Detroit, the Sugar Shack in Boston, the Club Harlem in Atlantic City, the, uh, uh, the um, uh, High Chaparral. I mean, these are black-owned, black-operated nightclubs that Tim and I worked where I'd be the only white guy, you know, within four or five miles. And then we worked all white nightclubs where Tim would be the only black guy. So the experiences we had touring the North and the South and what that was like in, in, that, in that, that era and uh, the lessons we learned along the way. So we were hoping to get that movie made. You know, and then also I'm, I'm writing a book on my own life that I, I'm involved in, heavy involved in writing that. And, um, and then, you know, my one-man show, and then some charities that I'm my own, my father, initiative charities I'm doing in the Gary Sinise Foundation. So that's what, I'm, you know, I got a lot coming up, a lot of work on my plate. Absolutely. I, I know the uh, the Tim and Tom, like I know uh, in, you know, other interviews you mentioned, kind of that time, it was it was rampant. I mean, you had the Vietnam War, the riots. I mean, there was a lot going on while you guys were touring. Oh, yeah. We, it was in a, the, the backdrop was <clears throat> from 69 to 75 when we were together. The Vietnam War was raging. I had just gotten out of the service. Um, uh, African Americans were rioting in Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, Watts. Um, in my neighborhood, one of the largest riot in the country, one of the largest riot was in, right in the neighborhood where I grew up in. And in the middle of all this, we were just trying to make people laugh. We were going across the land, you know, trying to make people laugh. You know, we had this incredible thought that if we could just get people to sit down and laugh together, maybe we could live together, you know. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's true. Because you know, it always starts off with you know. It, I mean, you can see in, in different movies too, where uh, you know, a big one that one movie that I always loved uh, was uh, Remember the Titans, where you have uh, this football team going to camp, and obviously the animosity is there to begin with because they were finally in- integrating their school, but they come back. And they liked each other, or they, they they grew to know one another and say, you know, we're just people. But yet the school and the community wasn't there yet. And to me, that was eye-opening because I'm sure that that's, you know, aside from there, but it's happened other places where you'd walk in and you wouldn't even think anything of it. You're just another person and, and you go back to the community and it's almost like, oh, man, they, they, they still have the same mindset as before, you know. Yeah, well, we, we, we confronted that and, in, 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 uh, you know, and in, in the world wasn't ready for Tim and Tom, uh, for Tim Reed and Tom Dreesen. The world wasn't ready for us, but... Uh, we were ready for them, and we had a lot of fun along the way. And and again, this great friendship. You know, his children call me Uncle Tom. You know, they've <laughs> since they were little. They, and it's so funny. They call me Uncle Tom. You know, and it was funny. We were on our book tour, and we went back to Norfolk State College, where Tim went to school. And it's an historical black college. And we were going to talk to the students about our book. And it, it, Tim's daughter Tori hadn't seen me in like a year, and. Um, she, I was at a buffet with seven black professors, and we were, we were getting our, a little bite to eat before we were going to go speak to the students. And she walked in the room, and she saw me, and she yelled across the room, Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom, <laughs> Uncle Tom. And the, these professors turned around and looked at her, and I, I looked at them, and I said, she's talking to me. You know? And they went up, and I hugged her. You know? 
she said, I said, honey, you shouldn't be calling me Uncle Young. Uncle. She said, oh, my God, I forgot all about that. <laughs> Given the situation, yeah, not ideal. <laughs> Um, but, it, but, but, I mean, that, that, that's what Tim and I were all about. We were about crossing that over, you know. We were about, you know, all of our routines weren't about race. We were just a, a black guy and a white guy. We, we were just two guys who happened to like one another and, and ha- had a lot of fun on one another and on stage had a lot of fun together. And, and, and that one was black and one was white was irrelevant. It's just that we were friends, you know. And, and I can't tell you, one of the most gratifying things in my life, Paul, is that we went a lot of places doing colleges. I'm talking about wherever there was racial tension, we performed there. We did 11 prisons in one year. Wow. We did colleges where there were high schools where there were racial tension. Oftentimes, afterward, a white kid or a black kid would come up to Tim and I, and a white kid would say, you know, I, had, um, uh, uh, you know, I have a black friend that I want to reach out to, but if I do, the white guys are going to all call me names and all that stuff. But after watching you and Tim, I'm going to reach out. I don't care. And then we'd have black kids come up and say, you know, i got a white friend, and I, I want to be friends with him, but the brothers are just wearing me out if I, if, I'm, if I have this white friend. But after watching you and Tim today on stage, I'm going to reach out to my white friend. You know, so that meant more to me, and I'm sure to Tim, you know, than anything else that I could have ever done. You know, if we didn't preach that. We didn't go to their preach togetherness. We went there to make you laugh. But if you got, got something else from it, well, that was good, too, you know. Absolutely, that's remarkable. Uh, folks, we're in studio with uh, Mr. Tom Dreesen discussing his career, comedy, uh, life advice, uh, you know, in, the, in the, the comedy history that he's made. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back, and then we'll go until 5 o'clock, and, and, that, and that's going to uh, wrap it up for us. So stick around, folks. We're going to be right back after these quick short breaks. Welcome back, folks, to the Paulo Sargero Show. Again, we're going to be here until 5 o'clock. We're going to be uh, start to wrap things up. We're in studio with Mr. Tom Dreesen discussing his career, comedy in general. Uh, one topic that I had here that I just realized um, I didn't mention, uh, Mr. Dreesen, in the 50-year uh, career you've had, how has the, uh, the comedy in general changed throughout it? Yeah, you know, I mean, nowadays, you know, whether it's on social media, we always hear something, oh, that's not politically correct, blah, blah, blah. How have is there some? How do you, you see comedy from you first started to how you view it now? Has it changed at all? Oh, without a doubt. First of all, the language. I mean, it's just as I told you before, we didn't have cable television when I first started out. We just had ABC, NBC, CBS. So you had to work clean. You know, today that's how it's really drastically changed. Some of the subject matter knocks me over. You know, men and women, you know, going into the most vile discussions about their sex life and stuff like that. That's how, how it's changed drastically. And the politically correct thing, too, you know, we have a First Amendment in this country. You know, the First Amendment, we have a right to say anything we want to say. That's, I mean, you can't yell fire in a theater, but, but, you know, if you don't like what we're saying, you can shut us off, turn us, you know, walk away. You can change the knob or something, but you have a right to say it. You know, um, thousands upon thousands of men and women have died so that we have this First Amendment in our country, and, and we have this right to say it, you know, to say what we want to say. Now, these politically correct police, I don't know who they are. We know who everybody is. We know who the, the, the uh, Democrats, who are the Republicans. We know the Independents. We know who the Kiwana, the Moose, the Elks. We know who the Ku Klux Klan is, but we don't know who the politically correct police are, and they keep telling us what we should say, what we should not say. You know, uh, you know, uh, we, you know, we have a right to say anything we want to say. So that part is, you know, Again, there's only one rule in comedy, be funny. 
you're not going to be funny for everybody, but, you know, there's one rule to be, to be funny. So, I mean, that, that's what's changed in our society, you know, um, more than, any, than anything. You know, comedy's changed drastically, I'm saying, in our society than it did when I first started out. But so be it. You know, you roll with the times, you know. Absolutely. Um, now, be, being a stand-up comedian, do, do you ever watch uh, different stand-ups, you know, the different uh, specials on TV? Is there a favorite uh, current comedian that, that you watch or that, that makes you laugh? Well, you know, there, there's a lot of them. I mean, I, again, I loved comedians before I was one. I go to the Laugh Factory, and I'll watch these young comedians, you know, on, on stage that are new, you know, I may say they're new, they're done it like 20 years, but, but I watch these, and, and, and I enjoy it. There's a young comedian named Johnny Sanchez that I just love. He's a little Mexican comedian. He's just so funny, and I, and I, I love whenever I, if I work at the Laugh Factory and he's on, I make sure I get there to watch him. You know, I like, um, I like Bill Burr. I mean, I, I mean, of course, they're veterans. You know, I, I, there's so many comedians that, that I could tell you that I like. I, I just enjoy stand-up comics. I really do, you know. Yeah, Bill, you know, it's funny. We just mentioned uh, political correctness, and I know... Um, Bill Burr does. Uh, you know, I'm not going to do the bit, but he talks about how politically correctness, how it's almost like walking in, a, in a, such a small closet of what people uh, can tell you what is funny and what can't be funny. You know, so it was just interesting mentioning political cor- correctness, and then you had mentioned Bill Burr, so it just popped in my head. Um, but yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, you, you know, I look at some acts. You know, the other day we were talking about specific comedians. Um, you know, who was the one we mentioned? Uh, uh, Andrew Dice Clay, you know, or, or certain material that I'm like, you, you couldn't even get away with some of that stuff. I mean, even, you know, one of the great uh, uh, comedians, Don Rickles, like that act, I mean, it was hilarious and it's funny, but like now if if, if he was here, the politi- politically correct uh, police would be all over him, you know? Oh, no, he couldn't, yeah, he couldn't get away with it. Yeah, it's just, it, it, it's totally changed. It really has. And, 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 and not for the better, you know, I mean, it, it's, um, <clears throat> it's, I remember I was on a, a show a while back, and I was talking about Frank and Dean. Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin had this great friendship, and, um, and they called each other Deg, short for Dago. Frank would say, hey, Deg, you know what, we'll go get something to eat, and, and, and they, they called each other Deg. And I was telling a story where Frank uh, and Dean had done something, and they said Deg, and the guy on the, the radio show said to me, oh, man, they couldn't get away with that now. I said, he said, people wouldn't let them get away with that. I said, I would love to be in a room with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, when somebody would come in and say to him, hey, you guys, you can't call each other Dig, because <laughs> I'd hope we were on the 17th floor, because you better open the window. They're going out the window in about five <laughs> seconds. <you know? laughs> it, it, it's funny. Uh, uh, you know, I hear, uh, you know, I see, you know, I, I always see the kind of the old clips of uh, Don Rickles on these shows, and he, every, every story he'd say, he's like, I can say this now, they're dead. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I knew Don. I knew Don real well, and and, and uh, you know, I, and I loved him. We had, you know, we, I did a lot of shows with him and stuff like that. He was he was a character. He was really some, you know, his favorite story was, uh, you know, the Don Rickles story. He was in a restaurant uh, when he was a young comedian. He had just met Frank Sinatra one time, and uh, he was in a restaurant with a girl. He was dating this girl. It was he was just a new comedian, and she looked across the room and she said, "Oh my God, there's Frank Sinatra." I can't believe it. He said, yeah, Frank comes in all the time. She said, you know Frank Sinatra? He said, yeah, I know Frank. He had only met him like one time. And he said, she said, if I could meet Frank Sinatra, I would do anything. And she reached across and she squeezed his hand. And she looked at me and she said, anything. <laughs> and Rico said, he got up and he went across the room and he said to Frank, Frank, could I, uh, could I ask you a favor? And he said, yeah, Don, what is it? He said, 
the girl I'm with is a big fan. Would you say hello to her before you leave the restaurant? He said, sure, when I'm finished eating. And Frank tells a story, too. He said he finished eating, and he walked across the restaurant, and he said, to, he said hi, Don, how you doing? And Rickles looked up. He said, not now, Frank. Can't you see I'm with somebody? <laughs> so much for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to, uh, I know you had, you mentioned, and I want to make sure uh, we get to it, uh, the sound of laughter. And then one of my favorite, um, you know, poem stories, rather, is Old Freddy. So I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about the sound of laughter and Old Freddy as we uh, start to wrap things up. And, of course, we'll get to our, uh, if you could talk to someone from history question for us. Okay, I'll try to, I'll try to close also with the sound of laughter. But this is something that I wrote. Um, uh, I was touring with Sammy Davis Jr., and I remember one night he just killed the audience. It was a great show that night, and he just killed the, the audience, and, and, uh, and the people were standing and cheering, and, and I was watching from the wings. And then he, uh, you know, and, and the show went so good for me that night, too. That, and now uh, I went to my dressing room, and I was coming across the stage about 20 minutes later, and that room was empty. And I looked out at that empty room that just moments before, minutes before, you know, several thousand people were just cheering and cheering. And, and I went back and I wrote this down. It's called The Comedian and Old Freddy. It goes like this. He sat inside his dressing room feeling 10 feet tall. He could still hear the laughter echoing through the hall. Many long years of struggle, nights inside the car, had all been worth this moment for tonight. Tonight he was a star. Suddenly a man walked in, 80 years old of a day. He said, sorry, son, I thought you'd gone. I'll clean up if I may. The young man said, go right ahead, sir. I won't be very long. Hey, I'll bet in your time many funny men have come and gone. Am I as good as those before he heard himself exclaim, surprised that he had asked that, but compelled to just the same? The old man smiled as if he knew the hardships of the game. He said, yes, son, I've seen them all and the way they handled fame. Now, you've got more than most I've seen, but if you really care to hear, come back on stage with me and let me have your ear. You see those empty seats out there that hold your many fans and that picture of your wife and kids that's on your makeup stand? Well, when the sweet applause has had its day and you are left alone, the truest fans who knew you then will still be there at home. He said, thank you, old man, and what was your name? You've given me more than my fortune and fame. He said, you're welcome, young man, and my name, my name is Old Freddy. I wish you the best, because I know you're ready. Next night, he could hardly wait for a second show to end so he could catch the cleaning man and talk with him again. And as the owner passed the door, he paused to say goodnight. He asked the comedian why he's sticking around. Is everything all right? He said, I'm waiting for old Freddy. I talked with him last night. He gave me some great advice, the kind I know is right. The owner said, but son, old Freddy hasn't been here for years. He came here when this place was built, and he even died right here. He said, thank you, old man. And what was your name? You've given me more than my fortune and fame. That's beautiful. That's one of my favorite, uh, favorite ones that, uh, that you do. Um, but in any case, w- would you like to do The Sound of Laughter as well? Well, it, it, yeah, The Sound of Laughter <clears throat> is, is another. After I had been struggling for, you know, years and years, I ended up, um, you know, w- going to Caesar's Palace with Sammy Davis Jr., and, and that was opening night, and driving down the main drag and seeing, the, you know, the, uh, your name on the marquee with Sammy Davis was hard to explain how exciting that was. And, uh, and so I, I went and I wrote this down, <clears throat> and, and I do it sometimes in my one-man show. It goes, as far back as I can remember, or shortly thereafter, I loved to hear the sound of laughter. Whether grown-ups or children, it really didn't matter to me. If I could make people laugh, then I was as happy as I could be. 
You see, when you make people laugh, they get such a lift. My mom once told me this is a God-given gift. She said, because you'll get so much love, and yet you're still able to give. I knew that I wanted to do this for as long as I lived. So I left my home in Harvey, Illinois, to tour around the country and spread some joy. Success was ahead. I just didn't know how far. Soon I was broke and sleeping in a car. But I worked, and I prayed, and I planned, and I dreamed. There were times I was alone, or so it seemed. I begged for jobs everywhere I could, and I bombed a lot of times, but I started getting good. They laughed one night in Boston, I'm proud to say, and soon they were laughing out in L.A. Now, if you're a comedian and you want America to know, then you've got to get a spot on the Johnny Carson show. Well, that happened one night, and what a break for me. Soon my name was on Caesar's Palace Marquee. Well, God's been with me now, and I've gone pretty far. Who knows, maybe one day I'll become a big star, but if I don't, it won't matter at all. Believe me when I tell you I've had a ball. So now I wish for all of you what's happened to me to find the work that you love, because that's really the key. So when I die and go to the hereafter, I'll miss all of you, my friends, but most of all, I'll miss the sound of your laughter. That's great. You might have a career in poetry. (laughs) (laughs) I got inspired and and just wrote that, you know. Absolutely. Um, There's one question that uh, I always loved asking uh, guests, and I kind of incorporated into uh, the show, and I always like to end with, um, if you could talk to anyone from history and ask them one question, who would you want to talk to, and uh, what would you want to ask them? That's easy. And I I tried to write a play about this years ago. I would like to talk to Jesus, and I would like to ask him, what made you laugh? Because I, 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 you know, being a boy going to Catholic school and being a Christian and, and believing in, in, in our Lord Jesus, I never read anywhere he laughed. You know, in, in 33 years, I would have thought that maybe he sat around with his buddies, his pals, his disciples, and they had some laughs. I once tried to write a play called What Made Jesus Laugh? And later did something similar on a show um, called uh, Touched by an Angel, where I performed on that show. But it was what made God laugh. But it wasn't what I really had in mind. It's, it's, if I could sit down and, and talk to Jesus, I'd just like to sit and say, what did you laugh about? You know, what was, I realized it was a, a pretty tough life, but I'm sure that he must have had some laughter. I want to know what would, made, what would have made him laugh, you know. Yeah, especially those conversations at the Last Supper. I'm sure they were cracking jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about the last supper. <laughs> uh, in any case, uh, Mr. Dreeshen, uh, thank you so much uh, for, uh, for joining uh, the show today. It really means a lot to me 